morning. Well, we start on a new study today. This is the one we've been talking about for a while that we've been studying prophecy. So, <clears throat> called an introduction to eschatology, which is the study of prophecies. Let's look at some definitions and we'll just jump right in, seeing that we're running late already. <clears throat> so, just by definition, Eschatology is the doctrine concerning the entire scope of biblical predictive prophecy, especially in time events, including the destination for both saved and unsaved people, heaven and hell. Now, eschatology is one of ten categories of systematic theology. Okay? And the ten are bibliology, which is the doctrine of inspiration, errancy, authority, canonicity of the Bible. Then you've got theology proper, which is like the study of the doctrine of God. And in that, you would have things like uh, the Trinity and the attributes of God and so forth. Then you've got Christology, which is the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. Pneumatology, the doctrine and person and work of the Holy Spirit. Anthropology, the doctrine of mankind. Hammer theology, the doctrine of sin. We touched on that for the last couple of weeks. Um... Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Angelology, the doctrine of angels, Satan, and demons. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And then eschatology, the doctrine of future and last things. So, how did you pronounce the doctrine of sin? just like it's written. Yeah. You die in sin, you get the hammer. No, that's not, that's not where it's from, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah God's judgment's the hammer you would be the nail <laughs> yeah. now <clears throat> again I'm going through a lot of this very briefly because I want to get to the main point which is actually on page 2 but um, eschatology and the plans of God well again the storyline of scripture begins with creation we know that Genesis 1 and culminates with the new heaven and new earth and the eternal state. Then prophecy makes up about 25% of biblical revelation. So that's, that's a big chunk. When you look at the entire Bible, 25% of it is prophecy, would be filed under the category of eschatology. It's interesting because eschatology in most seminaries is the, gets the least attention which explains why there's so many wild views out there, I think. <laughs> but um, eschatology and biblical interpretation, and here's where the lesson really starts getting important, is proper interpretation of prophecy requires a consistent use of grammatical historical interpretation in all areas of Scripture. And again, again, it's in all areas of Scripture. And... This methodology seeks to understand what the original meaning of the script of the scripture by what the writer and the original recipients would have understood it to mean. Okay? So in other words, like the New Testament written in the 1st century. We in written in Greek in order to get a an, a, a good understanding of what those words and phrases mean, we have to look at it from the perspective of first century Greek in the Roman Empire the Greco-Roman Empire where it was all written okay so the same thing with the Old Testament you know like 
you read the Pentateuch, who, who, little bibliology here, the Pentateuch, who wrote the Pentateuch? Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. So there you'd want to under you want to go back to the Hebrew as it was written and understood in the time of Moses. And as you move forward through history, you know how things change, the etymology of words and languages change. Look at you know, and so you just have to be aware of that as we move through time, the the the, the student of the word has to keep all that in consideration. So, I mean, look at right now. They, they, there is an active, ongoing... We talked about it last week, and I don't want to return to it, but there's people out there now changing the language uh, to accommodate sin. Uh, I'm thinking of pronouns. But, moving right along. Now, this method now... Um, <clears throat> This method, the first bullet point, this method views the texts of Scripture as having a single meaning, not multiple hidden or allegorical meetings. And that's important because even some of the early, what we call the early church fathers, Origen and a few others, they had a tendency to wander. They had a tendency to allegorize and spiritualize. And every, some, every Scripture has four meetings. And I go, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it has one intent. Uh, there could be several applications, but it means one thing, and we'll get into some examples of that. Yes? You know, multiple times in my Bible, it has little notes down there, and it often says, it's some piece of scripture, and then it says, this was fulfilled some kind of way like this, but also points to the future fulfillment by Christ or something, of which would be two meanings. Well, be two applications in that case because it would be like it means something but it also pictures or is a type of and we'll be getting to that too a type of Christ yeah and what we mean too by literal interpretation uh, what what people that actually care what the Bible means when they use the term a literal interpretation their meaning it what they're trying to say what they're communicating is that the scripture must be um, studied and understood using the historical grammatical methodology of hermeneutics. Okay, Herman who? <laughs> hermeneutics. Just another one of those terms that they pulled most all these terms out of the Greek, hermeneia, to interpret, to understand. Okay, so um, let's an example might show it even better. In other words, the grammatical historical method of interpretation agrees with the normal means of communication. Example, we're all familiar with uh, Isaiah 7.14. We'll be looking at that later where Messiah was to be born of a virgin. So the historical grammatical interpretation says when the scripture says the Messiah will be born of a virgin, that method of interpretation would say, oh, that means... Messiah will be born of a virgin. I mean, but you'd be surprised what people do to some of these verses. <laughs> some of these things that are pretty straightforward, but they, oh, well, you know, well, then, well the next example, well, uh, and then Micah 5.2, Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. Anybody want to take a wild shot at what that means? <laughs> you're right. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> you're right. <laughs>
and, and just context, but in literary sense. And there are some caveats to that too, because within within the writings of Scripture, you have you have things like figures of speech. If you interpret a figure of speech in a literal word for word, you're going to miss the point there too. So you have to know the difference between a a statement and a figure of speech. So all those there's a lot of consideration. So it's not quite as easy as I'm I might be making it sound, but it's doable. Hey, I do it. It's doable. <laughs> Well, and that, yes. Right. I think it's safe to go with the what it means to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a there's there's a there's a lot of folks that do that. And matter of fact, the phone book is full of a variety of denominations that have done that very thing. This, this is what I think it means, and, and oh well, I think it over here. Well, Fred says if this, oh, well, let's go with Fred. It's easier. And then another obvious one, Isaiah fifty-three. You read that, and it talks, but but that the Messiah was to die a horrible death on behalf of his people. Okay, and that it's especially too when you interpret scripture with scripture, the New Testament supports. All that. That's why I, I, I picked those th- three because it's very easy for us. Those are things we know about already. Those are passages we've all been in before. Um, and then I put some reasons on the. We're on page two already. My goodness. Yeah, don't let that kid you. But <laughs> some of the reasons for non-literal methods of interpretation are, and I just put a couple. There could be many more. The the one is like what Kendon pointed mentioned, like. Well, I think it means this. Or, right? <laughs> you know, the des- one, one is the desire to avoid the obvious interpretation of the passage. Some people just don't like what that says, and I'm going to re, uh, rethink this one. I don't really care for what that says. That's a, that's a big one. A lot of your false religious systems do just that thing. They just, no. And then, uh, then there's this one. The desire to bring the passage into harmony with a predetermined belief or theological system. A lot of your various denominations do that. Now, I, here's what I want to look at. Um, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. This is a passage we will be in in our study of prophecy because it has a lot of to bear on it, especially when we start talking about Israel, future, kingdom, it's all, all important. But Isaiah 2, 2 to 4 says, now it, will become, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of, of the mountains and will raise above the hills and all the nations will, will stream into it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. That we that that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will give the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will uh, hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Okay, now, so that's it. One day the nations are going to seek after God. That obviously isn't today. <laughs> okay? Unfortunately, including the nation we live in. Now, 
Some interpret this passage as being fulfilled in the church age when people from different countries believe the gospel and join the church. But historical, grammatical, look at this, the context, speaking to Israel, about Israel, and then the nations come in to see what Israel's doing, basically. Okay, they're coming in to join in with Israel. All right, which also presupposes in this passage that Israel is, is preaching the message that God would have the nations here. Well, that isn't happening today either. <laughs> okay, I mean, um, very, that, that, matter of fact, that is a very rare occurrence even in Old Testament history when Israel was doing what Israel was supposed to do. That was a very rare occurrence. All right? So that is all future from us. And we'll see that once we get into the prophetic. And then uh, Revelation 7, about the 144,000. Revelation 7, 4 to 8. And it talks about, well, I'll just read it. And the number of those that were, these are the 144,000, the number of those sealed were 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Just, okay, just what is it saying? Okay, well, what does it mean? Well, what is it saying? From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. I mean, this is, this passage is making it perfectly clear what the writer is talking about. Okay, uh, which is John. Basically, this is a revelation you know, from Christ to John by way of Christ himself sometimes and by way of an angel sometimes, okay, and by way of John being given a vision sometimes. And But it's the revelation. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, this book. And it, it's just from the tribe, of, from all the 12 tribes were sealed. Um, it just mentions every tribe by name. Now, some teach the 144,000 refers to the church. And, and not just the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> they got a little bit more picky about it. They said it refers to our church. And then he wouldn't say that they are the ones that take communion and Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, they had to shift gears a little bit because one, one day back, gosh, back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, somewhere, um, they started adding up the roles. Gee, we got when they hit 144,001, we gotta we gotta readjust the books. So either we gotta rule some people out, <laughs> or we gotta find a way to wiggle out of this. Well, they wiggled out of it. Mm-hmm. So when you say um, some teach that it refers to the church, what do you mean by refers to the church? Like like 144,000 churches? And that that can vary from different group to different group. We'll get into that a little bit later. Where you've got people that are called amillennialists that don't believe in a millennium at all. And we haven't touched that yet. And they got post-millennials that believe that sooner or later things are going to get better. And when everybody finally gets saved and joins the church, then Christ is going to come back. Okay. Well, there's some issues with that one too. Um, and then others also, there's another thing that we're going to have to deal with down the road where some people say the church takes the place of Israel. Israel's out. Israel got Israel's when they when they crucified Messiah, God says, "Done with you, bye, you're gone." And now the church took their place. 
A lot of problems with that one. Uh, but And a lot of these groups that believe those varying different theologies will say, well, that has to then refer to the church. And they say, well, they're quoting all the different names of the tribe. Well, that still refers to the church. And see, but again, they just, they just, they have their theology and they take this passage and just cram it in there and, and make it fit. Well, it doesn't. You know, you, I guess if you beat on it hard enough, you can get that square peg to get in that round hole. But you either mess up the peg or the hole, or both. But that's what they do. And you, you have a lot of problems with that. And, and again, just, I'll tell you, there's the, the, the big drawback about interpreting it literally, interpreting the Bible for what it says, there's going to be passages where you say, what exactly does that mean? And, and an honest answer is, don't know. I already anticipate saying that, and I know of a few places where in our study of prophecy I'm going to be saying that. I have no idea what that actually can mean. The people, however, that live in that day will know. My looking from my perspective out there to an era that hasn't arrived yet, I'm not going to make stuff up. That's that's something I will never do. Never. I just I'd rather say I don't know than to make something up. Um, what did James say about teachers? Don't be many because greater is your judgment. I think about that one. Okay. I I didn't mean to put you off. No, that's okay. It, I, I just was still trying to say that like specific churches, but you said that we'll get to this later. Well, the 144, the uh, the JW still hang on to that one. Right. Yes. Yeah, that that's them. But see, they're <laughs> a peculiar people in a different sense. Yeah, <laughs> not, not in the. A lot of your amillennial, postmillennial types, there's historical premillennial types that think this all got fulfilled in 70 AD, a lot of this stuff. And a lot of things have to be swept under the proverbial carpet to do that. And uh, like I say, this is why this is an introduction, because there's a lot of, and that's, that's all important considerations what you're bringing up. It really is. And that's why we're going to, we may end up, doing a study on the book of Revelation before we're done. I don't know. A lot of it's up to you folks. What your questions and comments later, you know, you talk to me on the side. I'm, I'm game to keep going, you know. Like trying to avoid the question, Bob. What's that? Sounds like you're trying to avoid the question. That's me. He's very shy. I was born and raised in L.A., so I'm a Dodger fan, right? So I dodge. Actually, I don't follow any of them anymore. But anyway... But here's the big point of the day, and we'll just go through as many of these as we can get through, that Jesus Christ is the central theme of Scripture, including prophecy. And that's the one thing. We may not be able to answer every little thought and word and uh, apocalyptic picture that is, we're going to see on the pages of Scripture, but one thing is for sure. Christ is the central theme of the entire, from Genesis through Revelation. He is the theme. And that's what I, you know, I want to look at. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm just going to pop through a lot of these and make some correlations and just do what 
time permitting, will let it allow us to do. First Peter 1, 10 to 12, I'm going to go as at my speed, which will be slower than some and quicker than a few. <laughs> 1, 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come come to you, made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that, there were, that, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels look to long, long to look. So even the angels don't get all this. So don't feel bad. You're in good company <laughs> if you don't understand everything. The angels don't get it all either. Okay? But um, the prophets who wrote these prophecies didn't understand everything they wrote. They, and the one thing they understand is they knew they were writing about Messiah, but they did not know the time or the day when it had come. We do. We have that information. We, I mean, we, have, we have it over the prophets in terms of our understanding of prophecy because we've seen so much of it fulfilled. Okay? That's a great blessing. We've seen so much of it fulfilled. And um, which it makes it easier for us to understand and have faith that what isn't fulfilled is going to be fulfilled. Because we have we have history behind us now too. On top of faith, we got history that works with faith. Okay, and by the way, biblical faith is not blind faith. It's based on something. It's based on something. It's it's not just, you know, it's like, like the the word hope. Hope doesn't mean gee I hope so. No, hope is anticipating that it's going to happen. We're looking. We're longing to see the fulfillment. That's what hope really means. That's an expectation of things to take place and then you compare that with revelation 19 10 19 10 says this here's uh john is speaking i fell at his feet to worship him and he said to me do not again this is john in front uh, talking with an angel do not do that I'm a, fo- I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And here's the, I, for this phrase, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And again, a lot of times you look, if we're doing a study of pneumatology, okay, the study of the Holy Spirit, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the spirit of God sometimes called the spirit of Christ. And I said, well, why? Because the Holy Spirit sometimes is speaking on behalf of the Father. Sometimes he's speaking on behalf of the Son. See? And so a lot of these prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, of the Holy Spirit is functioning as the spirit of Christ. And it just it's amazing, amazing when you get into this and you see what's going on in Scripture. We know we're all familiar with Luke twenty four. Remember that post resurrection passage where he met the two fellows on the road to Emmaus? And (laughs) Well, therefore I will then. My wife says we need to go there, so even though she's not cooking lunch today. Luke twenty (laughs) four. Luke 24, 25 to 27 says, 
Again, and on the road, Jesus says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in, 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 in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with, the, all, and with, let's just, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that conversation? Well, you know what? We're capable of having that conversation secondhand just by going through the scriptures and being very careful in our reading. You can say, oh, he, I know he was there. I guarantee he was in Psalm 22. Guarantee he was in Isaiah 53. That goes without saying. There's a whole bunch more, too. You know, and... Um, um, and again, in the, well, 20, we're in 24, 44, it says, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and he, and he adds in here, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. That's emphasizing all of the Old Testament, which was at that point in time, all of the existing scripture. All of the existing scripture, folks, speaks of me, Jesus was telling them. Every book, in one way or another, speaks of Christ. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. See, that was one of the tough ones. He said, well, on the third day? Is, where's the prophets on the third? Where's the prophecy on the third day? You might know that one? That Old Testament prophecy? I didn't hear you. The prophecy that says that, that, he says, you look at the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and... Verse 46 is, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. This was one of those that kind of goes back to Gary's question. Yeah, yeah, too late. Remember when the the, uh, scribes and the Pharisees kept asking for a sign? What did Jesus say? The only sign you're going to get? The sign of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish. So there, Jonah in that belly, although it was not stated, was a type of Christ in the grave. And you would not know that apart from the New Testament revelation filling in the gaps. And so I wouldn't... Same thing, the doctrine of the Trinity... The Old Testament saints, they're, they're just, it's there, but it's really tough to see. But we can, it, it becomes perfectly clear in the New Testament. You know, maybe not any <laughs> easier to understand, but it's, okay, it's taught. Okay? How it works sometimes could be tricky. And then, of course, you look at the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Um, <clears throat> And then about Scripture, the first work of Christ is, is mentioned in Scripture. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what does John 1.1 to 1.3 say? Who was it that created the heavens and the earth? Jesus Christ. All things came into by him and was not anything made that he didn't make. It's a loose translation of that, but that's what it's saying. Let's go back to Genesis because speaking of Christ being the central theme 
the very first prophecy scripture gives us is about Christ. The very first one. Genesis 3.15. This tells us a lot about God also, the Father. In pronouncing the curse, it's said in verse 15 of chapter 3, and I will put enmity, that's strife, division, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, the him there is Christ. And there's two things alluded to right there. One would be the virgin birth is alluded to. The unlike, you know, um, I'm, I'm like our latest um, um, Supreme Court Justice. I am not a biology major. However, I did learn in high school biology that the man carries the seed, the woman carries the egg. So for my high school biology, though I'm not a biologist, the seed of the woman, that's virgin birth. And you go through scripture, you know, they call it progressive revelation. We're given some, and as we move through the Old Testament, we're given more information, more information, more information, more information. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, it wraps it all up for us in the New Testament revelation. And so, and then also about bruising or crushing the head of the serpent and in the process bruising his heel, there's violence, there's pain, there's anguish and suffering there. Well, again, from this passage, we don't know what it would be, but as you move through scripture and you get more information, you like Psalm 22 comes in, Isaiah 53 comes in, more information is added to that violence that is spoken of here. So you see that, and that's how, that's how scripture is given to us in progressive revelation. So, you, so you just keep moving on. That's where we are in a very good spot in terms of um, if there's anything about scripture other than what's out ahead of us, we have, we have a lot of understanding that we can have if we so desire. And then while we're in Genesis, sacrificial animals, they were all types of Christ. Okay? Um, Look at Genesis 3.21. Okay, this is, remember in 3.15 he pronounced, he was in the process of pronouncing the curse. Get to 3.21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and and clothed them. Another word of saying clothed them, he covered them. Okay? And then you move forward into chapter 4. You've got Cain and Abel. And Abel on his part also brought of, they were offering sacrifice, the first of his flocks and the fat and the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Which means... And then you move from there. Say, okay, so you've got animal sacrifice here. Abel did his sacrifice. You have the skins of the animals. I believe right at that point in time, Adam was taught what that was representing. Because you look through, if you look at Adam's life, was it 930 years? Adam lived like Adam could have very well 
Adam was somewhere, Adam's death was somewhere on the time of Noah, or just before. So he knew a lot of those old patriarchs. And a lot of those old patriarchs got the word. Who did they get the word from? Adam, Seth, others that are perceived to have been believers. But yet by the time you get to Noah, they, the world as a whole abandoned that truth, didn't they? But the word was out there. They knew what to do. Then you keep moving forward into Exodus chapter 12. What do we have there? We're getting late. We won't turn there. But Exodus 12, you have the first Passover. We're now we're in the time of Moses, right? Exodus, leaving Egypt. And there, the lamb. Uh, oh, man. And in that one, the blood over the doorpost. The picture there is when the, when the death angel came over the town, when he saw the blood the people in that house where their physical lives were saved and the picture is so beautiful those people were saved by the blood of the lamb what a picture what a picture think about that they were saved by the blood of the lamb and that lamb that they got the blood off was a picture of Christ on the cross in his sacrifice as the sacrificial lamb the lamb that takes away the sins of the world the lamb of God and then you keep moving forward and you look for, further on like in Exodus twelve forty six, describing what to do and not to do with that lamb do not break any of the bones and in John 19 uh, when they went by to break the bones of the two men that died on each side of him they were not dead yet so they broke the bones of their legs so that they would drop and then suffocate nice and then when they saw that Jesus was already dead, they did not do that. They poked him with the spear. And right then and there, two prophecies were fulfilled. One, not one bone shall be broken from Exodus 12.46. And that's one of the reasons we know that that, was a, that lamb was a type of Christ. It, John goes back and says that was a type of Christ. And then the next verse, John says, another thing was, and that's where those double fulfillments bill where it says to fill this prophecy where they will look on him who they have pierced and they're going to then people are going to see him again when he comes back because he'll be carrying that same wounds in the side in the hands in the feet i heard a song that says the only thing in heaven made by man are the And then you have things like, uh, we're getting late here, but First Peter 2, 2, 6, and 8 was taken right from Isaiah. I mean, that, that passage was taken from three different old times, from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. Man. Let's look at Luke 4, and we'll end there. <clears throat> Isaiah 9 will, uh, no, I, t- I take, yeah. Let's look at Luke 4, Isaiah 9, we'll be in Isaiah 9. That's a messianic passage, so we, we're going to be there sooner or later. <laughs> if I'm, we're going to, uh, what did I say? Luke 4. Luke 4, as I turn through Isaiah. I need to listen to myself. <laughs> listen to the right me, not the wrong me. <clears throat> Although this is going to be compared to Isaiah. Luke 4, 17 to 21. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is Jesus, right? He, he moves into the 
synagogue. He's handed the scroll of the tongue. He just rolls that thing open to the exact place he wants to read. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and recover sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then that's from right out of Isaiah 61, which I'm going to look at very quickly. Isaiah 61, verse 1, that says, For for Zion's sake, oh, that's 62. The Spirit of the Lord is, is the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops there. And see, it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those. Now, the, from, we keep moving on. It's moving into the promised kingdom. He didn't come to give that the first time. He stopped right there. He came to proclaim it, not bring it about. See that? See there? So Jesus stopped right there, and I need to stop right there too because we're we're out of time. And so we'll next week we'll move on in our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time together. We just pray, Lord, that as we do this study, we don't get uh, too caught up in in. Uh, frivolity and fun stuff although it's going to be a tremendous tremendous blessing to hear what you have in store for us but lest we may we never forget that this story is about you and may we put you first in jesus name and for your glory amen